This morning it should be no surprise that we're again in Hebrews chapter 4. I think today as we look through the Hebrews we'll see that there has been a message for us about Christ and his deity and as we have come this far in chapter 4 we'll see that uh, there has been the message of Christ who he is and what he has done both in in the flesh as man and then of course ultimately as God what he has done and what he has provided for those who are his and then we see many times uh, from that point forward in chapter 1 we see uh, a warning that we should take heed and listen and consider this Christ this Jesus of our calling and then to see that this is a great heavenly calling and then uh, as chapter 4 has progressed this morning we see in fact that uh, the message is of Jesus and although it seems that it is speaking uh, of man it's only speaking of man uh, as far as man is to serve Christ and this morning I think Brother Kirk, in his reading of Matthew chapter 6, read a verse that would define for us all that we see in, in Hebrews in its totality, but most certainly in Hebrews chapter 4, the message the, uh, in the epistle to the Hebrews was in fact this, man cannot serve two masters. And that is how we come to see Christ in Hebrews chapter 4, that we can no longer serve self, but we must only be serving Christ. What I would like us to do is begin with the reading of the word and then go into prayer. Hebrews chapter 4. I want to read beyond the verses uh, that are listed in the bulletin as well because I think it may be necessary that we read more than just those. It says, beginning with verse 1, Therefore let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time just has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's go before the Lord. Almighty God, we come to you this morning, uh, Lord, in reverence and obedience to your word because we know that your word is true. We know that the word is, is Christ made manifest unto believers, God, that it is true when every man is a liar. And God, we come because we, we trust this word. We trust this Christ. We know that he has accomplished redemption and accomplished salvation upon Calvary's cross. And truly, as the text said, we know that it is finished, that Christ has done the greatest of works. And because of that, God, what may we assemble here today. And God, you've called us to confess our sins, Lord, and reminding us that you are faithful to forgive them. God, we come and I come before you, Lord, knowing that even this week, God, we have committed every sin imaginable. We're a people truly of unclean lips, God, and uh, without Christ, unclean hearts, God, without him, there's no holiness, there's no sanctification. God, we have no righteousness and we have no appeal before your throne, but because of what Christ has done, because he has promised, God, because you have given him according to your will and he has saved and is saving those who will believe because of the faith that you bestow upon us, God. We 
we come trusting in that word, Lord, offering nothing to you but our sinfulness, Lord, and whatever obedience you would allow, God, trusting that uh, through obedience and through the reading of your word and the study and the meditation upon it, God, that you would make us more like Christ. And we come to you this morning asking both for you to do that, God, and for you to receive our worship that in learning about Christ that we would be truly lifting him up and exalting him, God, that we would be giving our hearts over to him and desiring the things of the Spirit rather than the things of the flesh. God, we ask that you would make this a reality in our lives, Lord, cause us to be conformed uh, truly to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we be more like him every day, God, and would you just alter our hearts and minds, Lord, to be more holy this morning by the reading of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're on, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 3 this morning. And it's, it would really be hard to understand verse 3 if we had not come from, ver, or come from chapter 3 and seen those things. And I, I, I picked a, a rather, I guess, somewhat provocative title for the message this morning, Jesus, the rest of God, because in it I believe that there are several things revealed to us of the Christ, the person of, of Jesus Christ. One, that the, the passage, as we would read it this morning, becomes very clear that there is no rest uh, for the wicked unless they be transformed by Christ. And for that to happen, it means that the rest that is offered from God, the rest from weariness and the heaviness and the weight of sin comes only by Jesus so therefore he is the rest of God and what we must know is that God does not exist just in one person's but he is in fact a triune God existing in uh, the person of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and that must mean that if we are to have the Holy Spirit and we have the command of God the Father then we must need Jesus because he would be the rest of God that he is not uh, separate from God, that he is not unequal from God because we know that equality was not something to be grasped, grasped by Christ, but that he is in every way imaginable. And even those ways that we cannot imagine and we cannot comprehend, Christ is the rest of God. Pick any form, and I think, you know, it works out for us in English that he is the rest, meaning he is the remaining and when we think remaining in that term of rest, not only is Christ one who is remaining the, the other part, if you will, for lack of a better term of God, but he is the Christ who remains eternally, that he did not die a, an infinite death, but in fact he died and he rose again, and therefore he is remaining. And he also promises with, with his Holy Spirit that, lo, I am with you always. He is remaining here today and he is with his people if it were not for christ we could not read the word and we certainly would not comprehend but we must come to the conclusion this morning that christ is the rest of god and christ is all of god christ is everything and without him there is nothing and that would mean nothing created nothing in the heavens nothing in earth there's no holiness without god and then we come to the verse where we're at this morning. It says, continuing from chapter 4, verse 2, For indeed we have the good news preached to us, just as they also did. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united with faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished, from the foundation of the world. The qualifying part of the statement begins with the very first word, for. It says that they had heard the word and it did not profit them, and it was not united by faith in those who heard, and that's just the reality that no matter what we do as eloquent preachers or speakers or teachers, we cannot woo someone to Christ. We cannot speak 
uh, in, in terms of rationale that would make someone believe because these two have heard just as the believers yet they had not responded. And, and what we see is that there is a, an appeal here to the one who is reading the text and most certainly that is for you and I this morning for, for the New Testament church that there will be some that hear and will not respond appropriately as we have discussed in, in previous weeks and really in its original and uh, its original transmission as it was given to these Hebrew people, it was an appeal to leave works righteousness and to leave Judaism and to come truly to Christ, not because they haven't heard of Christ, but indeed they had heard, as we see many of them, and many were saved after hearing, and many were yet to be saved after hearing, and many would never be saved after hearing. The truth is that there are many like this, who have heard the message this morning, heard it in times past, believed that Jesus is the Christ and trusted not, and instead have a profession of faith but have never moved to obedience to Christ. It's a sad thing because there is no love without obedience to Christ. He said it. One who loves him will keep his commandments. That is obedience. One who loves him and only the one who loves him will enter the kingdom of heaven. How can we know? Because we have the perfect picture of the gospel in marriage. The husband truly loves his wife. And the wife truly loves her husband, right? Not only is that sad, but it is commanded that the older teach the younger to love because it is necessary. If that, I would submit to you, is necessary in marriage, if it is necessary for the husband to love his bride and for the woman to love her husband, teach her to love her husband, if that is necessary on earth in marriage, do you not think that it is necessary for the bride of Christ to love her bridegroom? If that is the case then, if it is necessary for the bride to love her bridegroom, then we can say without any interjection, without any, any thought past it or beyond it, without any consequence, that it must be so that for us to love the bridegroom Jesus Christ, then to see that love out to its fulfillment is to be obedient to Christ. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In essence, if you love me, you'll be obedient. Without that love, we are much like a whore. Christ is not the bridegroom of one who does not love him. Sadly, man can do nothing apart from his nature. Christ must give to us this love and so we see when we come to the very first word here in in verse three four saying because there are some who heard and were you were not united by faith for is the justification of the terms that have come previously the need of faith and that is exactly what hebrews chapter four is describing in verse two we need faith the four is justifying the sentences before it. We must have faith. Lip service does not work. Excuse me. We cannot merely come to church and profess Christ and not with every earthly and every spiritual thing we have not also invest in Christ and invest in his kingdom. I look at it, like I said a few weeks ago, if indeed God were to tell us no man will enter into heaven, wouldn't we still be responsible to worship and glorify him? Is he not still creator? Is he not still the God of all creation, everything created for his pleasure? Must we still not be obedient? And yet, when we look at the passage, we see up until this point 
the, the images that are, that are resounding from Psalm 95 and resounding from those who wandered in the wilderness. And the warning over and over up until this point has been, be fearful uh, lest you fall in the wilderness like these have. Be fearful, be fearful, be afraid. Hell is real. Sin is damaging. It is bringing death. And without God, you may not be saved. And so we have this appeal to them, to the one who is listening, to the one who has heard the gospel gospel to come to Christ out of fear but this morning we see something a little different we see come to Christ for rest come to Christ not because you are scared to avoid but come to Christ because he has something to give Bethany and I listened to some sermons in Hebrews and it's a reality that, like any church, we could have a time when people could give their testimony and some come from fear because they were scared when they saw the perfect man, Jesus Christ, and that He, being God, requires perfect righteousness and that they had none. They were fearful for what their sin was bringing upon them, that condemnation, that eternal hell, and they came to know Christ. And then there are others who would read the text and find themselves in amazement over this, what the text says, not a beautiful, physical Christ that was somehow better looking than any other man because it says he had no former comeliness that any man would desire him, but a beautiful Christ in the sense that everything he does was selfless. Everything that he does was for his neighbor everything beyond that was for those who sinned against him came into his own his own receive him not they sought many times we see in the new testament to lay hands on him to stone him to kill him they lifted him up on the cross after hearing that he was guiltless and so we have that picture here in the hebrews that some come as john would warn Hebrew of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath of God and some come like that and some come in the great mercy and grace of God seeing not only their sin but seeing the majesty of the God man Jesus Christ and that is what truly is before us but Verse 4 is telling us that the qualifying statement is, the, is justified in the need for faith that we have in the second verse. Let us fear, because some will hear the good news and they will not enter the rest because it has not been united with faith. What a question we must ask ourselves. Does our confession unite perfectly with the will of God in faith in Jesus Christ is our confession merely hinging upon the fact that we know that we're sinful or is it resting on the truth that Christ has perfected it that Christ has made it certain knowing that we sin and I heard John MacArthur say it this way he said our sins never stack up more than one against us because Christ is always there forgiving the moment that we sin. I told Charlie this week as I was at his house, Charlie had a monster stump out there. And I was, and, and praise the Lord for this, that in, in the fall, and in the curse that man would have to work by the sweat of his brow and that in that we can even see Christ because as I was grinding on this stump I thought of this stump and I said man this stump is a lot like my sinfulness and I considered it in light of what we've seen in Hebrews about the hardened heart Charlie cut this stump I don't know 20 something years ago it was a tree and this thing is hard and it's huge and I've got this piece of machinery and I'm, I'm going at it and it's chipping away and I thought, this is my sin. It's easy to look at it 
for 20 years and let the heart get harder and harder and harder. Or, as with the Christian, we come to Christ and we see Christ in His glory. We see Christ in His finished work on the cross and we're trusting in what He has done. We're reading the Word. We're being washed by it. And because of that, we're being sanctified. And sanctification is not a complete process this side of heaven the day that you commit to Christ because it says here that they are, they are those who are being sanctified. Paul calls himself the chief among sinners even after being saved because he is not perfectly holy. He's being made holy and like that machine, Christ every day with the word and with the person of himself is chipping away at that hardened stump. And if we would just leave it, it would only grow harder. And it would only be more difficult to deal with sin. And, and in fact, we would begin to accept sin. It started looking good in the yard, didn't it, Brother Charlie? It wasn't going anywhere. But the reality is that the one who is united with faith in Christ after hearing the gospel is trusting so in Christ that he is reading the word and he certainly is loving Christ and being obedient to the point that Christ is chipping away at sin. He will not allow the heart to remain hardened and sinners such as I and such as you should not allow sin to become so hard and in one sense become so easy. Christ is chipping away at this sin. But the verse goes on. It does not simply stop with the justification of being united by faith with the gospel. It says, for we... Who is the we? We who have believed. Who is giving us that belief? Who is giving us the reception of the gospel? Is it not God who's causing man to believe? And we could spend much time even in just that short part of the passage. We who have believed. There is the miracle of Christianity. There is the reason that the gospel is being preached. Not simply so that man can say that they believe in God, but so that this belief is united with faith. And faith means that that belief is causing man to trust in God and no longer in self. There's a difference in what some people mean when they say believe and what I say when I believe. Hopefully that is the reality with you. Because I know many people who say that they believe and they look like the world. They act like the world. They love the world. But this is saying, for we who have believed, those who have truly heard the gospel, and it has done exactly the opposite of what we see in verse 2. Instead of not profiting them, it has profited us. And the truth is that when we profess the Jesus Christ of the Bible uh, and the profiting that we have in believing in His name and salvation in His name, our first instance should not be to tell what God has provided us on this side of heaven, lest it be faith, but to tell what God has done on earth and now what He is doing in heaven because this passage is talking about Jesus Christ, the great high priest. That's the message. Jesus Christ, the great high priest. So I've said it many times. Before Christ, a priest would go, make a sacrifice, and the next time sin happened, he would need another, and another, and another, and another. What Christ has done in being both man and God as he has served as a priest knowing who God is and what God is expecting, knowing how man is frail because he too has taken upon himself this flesh, subjected himself, laying aside certain rights and things that belonged inherently to him as God. And I heard it said this way again this morning, that God has faced in the person of Christ every temptation like unto man, right? We know that. But what we haven't seen is that Christ has seen even worse. You know why? Because when we're tempted, we come to the point where we give. 
the temptation stops because we give in but with christ the temptation was there and it was increasing and increasing and increasing why because christ would not give in to it therefore not only was he tempted and then like a man succumb because that's what we do but christ was tempted and tempted and tempted and tempted the whole time satan trying to thwart god's plan of salvation so therefore christ must have been tempted until the time that he went to the cross and he did not fail As this high priest, this man who knows men, this man who has had his own flesh beaten and broken, cut, scourged, seen all manner of temptation, there is no one better to represent man and there is none other who can represent God. That is how Christ is functioning as the priest and you know the truth is that the old testament is clear the priest really had no right to be where he was in the holy place he could only come at certain times he could only come in certain ways and he was fearful because he knew at any moment he could be taken christ doesn't have to fear this way christ is not like any priest of mere flesh christ is going before us he has made the sacrifice he has sprinkled the blood and it is there and when christ goes into the holy of holies like no other priest hebrews chapter one says that he is seated no other man would dare do that this is why we don't have the same jesus as the mormons and we don't have the same jesus as the catholics and we don't have the same jesus as the jehovah's witnesses because their jesus cannot do that their jesus cannot be a propitiation and a man and god he cannot ascend he cannot descend because he is not a god he is not the God. He is not the way. He is not the truth. And there is no life or light in him. But for we who have believed, there is a rest. And some people may confuse this rest and say, this is, this is the Sabbath rest. I believe that we cannot completely disconnect the sabbath rest with this passage but i would indeed say that this is not what is being talked about because we see here uh, later a reference to it as it says yes god rested but this is not the rest because if if that is true we know that there are those especially here in the hebrews who had heard of jesus who had heard this message and the the text says that they did not profit them and they were still trusting in the law right they were trusting in the law and they were keeping the Sabbath. So they thought. This is not a Sabbath rest. But there is a picture in the Sabbath rest of the rest to come in Christ. It says, for we who have believed do enter that rest where they who did not have faith and who did not believe will not ever enter that rest. We do enter that doesn't mean that we are there yet and we must see that that the rest of christ has not yet come in its totality for believers i would submit to you several reasons why but the 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 proper rendering of the text would be that we are to enter we will enter we certainly have faith and hope that we will enter the rest that is in christ this is rest that is promised in the Psalm 95 from which the text is quoted. Why would I say that we have not yet entered that rest? I would tell you for two reasons. One, we are still this side of the grave. And because of that, we have received and we are receiving the truths of the, cur of the curse amidst the mercy of God. We are laboring and there is no rest in laboring. And that is indeed what the Sabbath is for. Sabbath was created for man, God said. I don't want us to look at it this way. Maybe, maybe this 
will explain it, that we are called as fallen man to labor. And that is what we will do until we go to the grave. But more importantly, for even those of us who are in Christ, the reason that we are not in this rest that it's talking about yet, and the reason that we are to enter into the rest is because we are called to labor for the kingdom of God. We are called to labor at every point. That doesn't mean just your job. That means your job. That means when you breathe, you're breathing for the glory of God. When you're walking, you're walking for the glory of God. Charles Spurgeon said he smoked cigars for the glory of God. Whatever you do is for the glory of God. Therefore, that makes everything that we take, everything that we take in, everything that we put out, every effort that we make, every thought that we are hold captive to, it is unto the Lord. That is a labor. We're laboring unto God. Isn't that what the Christian is called to do? We have two things, and we like to get them mixed up, and that's why a lot of people come to church and evangelize. We got, oh, we have to evangelize. No, first of all, we're to worship the holy God of the Bible. If you can't worship, you can't serve. If you aren't worshiping, you aren't serving. That's the reality. So first and foremost, we see that we are called to give glory to God and to worship Him and exalt Jesus Christ. And after that, the church is called to assemble together so that we're seeing one another, that we're confessing our sins, that we're being careful that we, as Christ is working, we too are chipping away at sin, that we are combating sin. We're not allowing it to have a foothold in our lives. We're not allowing it to have it a foothold in our neighbor's lives or the pew next to us because we love the people in this pew because they belong to jesus christ because he has paid a great debt for them and likewise because of that we are laboring in the word and we are laboring in the world so that people will see christ and not just for a moment not just during this particular day when we evangelize but everything that we do because if we, for one moment, quit showing and quit spreading the light of Christ, quit reflecting that light of Christ, sinfulness will creep in and hearts will harden. And so there we are. There's the picture of man laboring, man laboring. And you know what? Here's the truth of the rest. Because when we leave this earth, the laboring is over. And you're thinking, no, Tim, we have to worship the Lord forever. That is joyful. We will not see that as labor. We will see that as the most fun we've ever had. The most joyous thing, the most privileged thing that we will ever do is to see Christ, not just in spirit, but to see with eyes the things that are unseen. To experience the holy radiance of Christ that is expressed in Hebrews chapter 1. That is when we enter the rest. That is when we, with the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, as the bride, reach the consummation. And it is no longer a labor, but it is pure joy, excellence in Christ. For we who have believed enter that rest just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Now, what does that mean? There's that fearfulness. There is the wrath of God. If you don't think that God is a wrathful God, then you don't think that there is a God. You have a weak God. You have no God at all, in fact. Because here it says that he has said it. God has said in his word that unbelief denies entrance into the kingdom of heaven unbelief separates you from god why because unbelief ends up manifesting itself in every sin possible if we are unbelievers then we will sin and the fact is when we do sin it's because we're not believing we're not remembering we're not trusting we're not resting in the faith that is christ that's why we need to be reminded unbelief is excluding our entrance into the kingdom and our presence before the lord and then likewise he's saying if in fact we do believe then there is granted 
but as many as receive him. There is belief granted of God, not of man. Nothing for man to boast in. Nothing to be proud of. It says here is that rest. The reason I want to look at a few more verses is because as the text progresses, verse 11 really is the monument of what is being said here. It says, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. The penman of the Hebrews is telling us that we are looking for rest, but we can only look in one place, and we can only look to this Jesus who is the Christ, and that he himself is the rest, and that we must have faith, we must be believing, and we must be ever vigilant, because we too will fall if we do not. If we are not looking. Faith is the indispensable qualification. Faith implies true belief. Several years ago, I made this analogy about calling on the name of the Lord, and I'll, I'll never forget it. I don't know why. I just I used Barbara, and I said, if Barbara was to fall off the porch, she can call for help and say, help, help, help. But if she calls out to a particular name, if she calls out for Jimmy, she's calling because she knows he's there. And there is what the text really means when it says those who call upon the name of the Lord. They're not calling hoping someone will hear, but they're calling knowing that Jesus Christ is able and ready and is listening for those who belong to him because he will not allow them to slip out of his rest, out of his promise. We see in the text, we aren't allowed to slip and we shouldn't fall. And the only way to combat that is to exercise belief and faith in Jesus Christ. That is working for the kingdom of God. We enter the rest, just as he said, because his wrath is real. You know, I thought about it. Christ God is resting. The text goes on to say it. It says, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. This is a different rest. God is resting and praise God that he is resting. Praise God that he is able to rest because his work is finished. And I'll tell you why. Because if he is not resting, he's working. And he's working in the form of his spirit most certainly for those who are coming to him. But I'm talking about working and exercising everything that Jesus is to do. Because if he is not seated right now, he's coming to judge. And for the world, that's a dangerous thing. Praise God that he has finished his work in salvation and that he has entered the rest because it says that he has. He has. Because if he's not, we're in danger. Because when he stands, it's to judge. It's to come back. New heaven and new earth, Hebrews is very clear, chapter 1 and 2 telling about what Christ is going to do. They will come. The old will be folded up like a garment. It will pass away. All of these temporal things and the notions of our temporal mind, these things will be gone and only Christ will remain. This is the wrath of God waiting. It's not a possibility. It's a reality. That for sinners, God is waiting patiently, long-sufferingly, leaving man without any excuse for sin, but he is coming. It says it. It's very clear. God has finished the work of creation and entered on his rest. Christ is entered on his rest. Hebrews tells us that. He created all that was created. Nothing came into being without him. Finished. He said it on the cross. It is finished to Talistai. 
And yet, man walks through his life in all manner of unbelief as, as if there is still work to be done, as if they still have time. And the reality is that the sand has stopped running from the hourglass and it is but a moment when Christ will return. But a moment. We may not see the dinner next door before Christ comes. That's a reality. And if we leave here hungry today, let's hope that we have left here hungry for that food and not for Christ because we have been feeding on Him the entire time that we're here. That is our responsibility when we assemble to come. It says that Christ has entered this rest and it's saying that He has done so long before man This is a certain thing that Christ would have done. It's not an afterthought that he would come before Moses, before Abraham, before Noah, before any of these men. The promises of Christ and his rest were true and they were inherent and they would always be. There was rest for those in Israel, right? They were looking for this land. A rest in Canaan. And yet it didn't wasn't seen until Joshua. And yet, it still speaks about those who will enter the rest. Any rest, Old Testament or New, that is not talking about the rest in Christ in heaven, the rest that the believer has because of Christ, is just a temporal rest that is pointing to the eternal rest. That is what the Sabbath is for. To remember God. To remember Christ. Not that we shouldn't be doing it every day. But to remember what He has done, right? The six days before. It's already done. He's finished. And that is what the Christian is called to, do, called to believe. That's why I'm not a Sabbatarian. Every day should be a Sabbath to the Lord because His work is done and I need to be every day reminded of what He has done on the cross. You can have this world. But will you have the Christ who is eternal? His works were finished. He said that. And yet we don't believe. And yet we treat this gospel as if we'll hear it tomorrow. The truth is, if the day begins with the sun rising some will hear it and some won't hear it unless they come back next sunday that's a sad reality especially if we think that we are the church it says there is still a future rest remaining for those who believe in christ that is what we look forward to. And if that is the case, then until that rest comes, those six days we are to be laboring. Let's treat from this moment forward like the sixth day. Like we are laboring because tomorrow is the rest. This is the last day that we may be able to labor for the kingdom of God. This may be the last day that we may preach the gospel this side of heaven. This may be the last day that we have the opportunity to present the biblical Jesus Christ for the unbeliever that they may be saved. This may be the last moment. Then will the believer rest from his works and the reality is that without christ you're working for one or two you're working for only one other thing there's only two types of works one for christ one against christ the believer who is working for christ has a day of rest to look forward to the one who is working against christ the worker of iniquity Sons of their father, the devil, sons of disobedience, and that's what they are, workers of iniquity. There is no rest. And what does that mean? They're constantly working iniquity to the day that they die. Without Christ, every work is a work of iniquity, and it will be done until the grave, heaping up condemnation. And now we see the beauty. For the believer, there's rest in Christ. And for the unbeliever, they're always having to work and they're always working against 
They're always bringing judgment. This is what sin does to the unbeliever. The question is, will we rest in Christ? The question is, do we truly know Christ? He has promised. He has granted us the gospel. He has granted us a, a body of believers. And for many here who profess to know Christ, he has certainly granted belief, but we must, like these, be careful. These Hebrew people, I would imagine that their church looked exactly like the modern church in many ways. Maybe not the clothing, but spiritually. The fact is that there are some who will creep in unawares. There will some who profess but not unto salvation. There are some who hear and the, the root never takes. The seed never sprouts. And they may be there every week. And I've seen it myself. I, I found some, some seed the other day in the basement. I was going to throw it away. been there since 2002. And I said, well, I'll just throw it out and see if it grows. Some of it's still sitting there right where it was thrown. And that's what happens even in the church as we preach. Not the universal church that belongs to Christ because everyone there is a believer in Christ truly. But what I'm saying is that with the gospel, are we like this seed? Are we hearing it? Is it being thrown out and cast onto our soil and just sitting there? Or is it being watered and nourished by the truth of the gospel? Is it being washed by the word because that's what breaks that outer layer, that hard part of that seed, and it begins to sprout, and it's a work of God. But he's only going to work one way, he says it, through the foolishness of preaching. That some will hear the gospel, and he will grant belief, and they will receive him because he is giving himself, and Christ said it, He's giving himself as a ransom, a propitiation. We have no other plea. We have no other argument. This is the promise of rest in Christ finished before the foundation of the world. Will we trust in him and will we preach him? I think Kirk was able to learn a valuable lesson today. The pastor is not the only preacher here. Every Christian is called to read the Word of God. I'm talking privately. To meditate upon it. To serve it. To love it. To cherish it. To invest it like those talents. Not to simply hide it in his own heart, but to instill it and hide it in others' hearts as well so that when the master comes, because he said it, we can't serve two masters. When he comes back, he sees. He's bringing rest when he comes. But he wants to see that we've been working while he's gone, and he knows. He sees. Nothing is hidden. He sees the nakedness of our hearts. He sees the corruptions of our flesh and we only need to come before Him, confess our sins, and He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. But we're called to work. The church is called to labor. The rest is not now. The rest is to come and it's to come in Christ. And when we get there, we'll see how wonderful that rest is and then we'll also know how wonderful the labor was. There's the difference. makes all the difference in the world when we realize that we are laboring and we are working for Christ and we are on the right team. Because we'll see, that's not a work or a labor that was in vain. His Word is not returning void. When you preach the Word of God, I look at it this way. I don't know how many people are saved, but God's got my words numbered, and He's got my hairs numbered. He's got my days numbered. He knows how, how many times I'm going to present the gospel before somebody is saved. And so if this person doesn't receive it, I know I'm getting closer to the time when it will. And I may not see it, and that's okay, but I'll know in heaven. We'll all know that the gospel has gone out from the church that truly belongs to Christ in heaven. And we'll say, that is why we labored for the Christ. Because those people, those saints are worshiping God. And this is what we wanted to see. And this is what we're created for. That Christ would be exalted. And that man 
would be made low, that he would know his rightful place and that he would serve the one triune God of the Bible. The message this morning is really fearful for some and for others. It's a great promise, the promise of rest, the rest in Christ alone. Let us pray. Father God, as we come before you, God, we just thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for what he's done, God. We ask that you would make us truly to be the church that you have founded, God. Not the church of this world, but the church whose chief cornerstone is Jesus Christ, built on the apostles and prophets, God. That is who we wish to be. God, and we we pray to you because you alone know those truths. God, you alone are building the church. We're only stewards. God, we just ask that you would teach us, mold us, God, and sanctify us and allow us to have great spiritual discernment or give to us abundantly so that we can work for your kingdom. God, that we would be happy with our labor, Lord, and be looking to that rest that is to come in Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would know him and that we would love him and that we would serve him and that we would, as Brother Jimmy says, see many come to know him in a saving way. God, we trust you this morning for the increase. Lord, we know that we cannot, even by human intelligence, understand or comprehend the spiritual things of Christ in this passage. And we just look to you, Lord, uh, to enlighten us. Lord, to shed a holy, essential light upon them. And that in them we would see the only way, the only truth, the only life, Jesus Christ. Lord, that he would be our bread and that he would be our living water and that we would be planted uh, near him, God, and that our roots would be in him and never be pulled up. Lord, we ask that you would also bless the food as we partake, Lord, and, and bless our fellowship together and that Christ would be exalted in it, Lord, that you would be glorified and that you would be pleased to see us together united in faith in Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.